This week's Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesday. It's back. Join us on the 19th. This is the coming Tuesday. We're going to talk about innovation in 2021. Go to devicetalks.com for more information. All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salami. Welcome to this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This is episode 41. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to talk a lot about digital surgery this week. We're opening up our opening keynote with Mark Tolan. Mark is the CEO, the new CEO of Medical Micro Instruments, aka MMI. He has most recently been the CEO of Corindus, which he's helped sell to Siemens. He's also a partner at Biostar Capital. Mark and I talked a bit about opportunities for new robotic surgery tools. MMI is very cool. It's got a very neat microsurgery platform and we'll understand how that will help MMI compete in the future and when it plans to come to the US. Our closing keynote conversation includes Scott Hunnikin. Scott, of course, is well-known in MedTech. He's the former CEO of Verb Surgical the effort between Google and J&J to build a digital surgery platform. We also spoke in that same conversation with Cal Patel. He is the CEO of Bright Insight, previously had been with Doctors On Demand and Amgen, helping the pharmaceutical company formulate its digital strategy. Scott, Cal, and I talked a bit about the state of digital surgery, where it is and where it's going. They definitely brought different perspectives to the talk. And I know you'll enjoy that conversation. Before we get into those two big talks, we're going to have our opening conversation with my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Good to be here, Tom. Great to have you back. I know it's been uh, a busy virtual week. We've had virtual JP Morgan. We've had virtual, well, that was last week. No, this is this week. Yeah. Yeah. This week. Time flies by. <laughs> That's right. My, this is still... Time flies by when you got a lot of virtual conferences to attend. This is January still, right? We're still in January? Yes, it is still January. Okay. There right. is still snow falling outside of my house and outside Minneapolis. So, well, yes. that is unfortunate. So to all of our Minneapolis, Minnesota folks, I am dreadfully sorry. We have miserable weather here in Boston, but there's no snow. But we have... Hey, my, my kids are happy. More sledding. Get the... Break the sleds out. That's right. And they're small kids, so you can just like put them on like a, a very tiny hill in the backyard, and they're happy for hours. Front lawn, front lawn. <laughs> you know, I just tell them, you know, we just gotta look both ways, you know, down the street, you know, and then hey, you kids just head right down that front lawn. <laughs> but we're good. We, in addition to these virtual conferences, and we're gonna hear from uh, Daniel Kirsch, who is on the scene at CES in uh, in virtual Vegas. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll hear a few, uh, a little bit of a report of what was going on there. But we've yeah. had. Other news from uh, from some of our medtech leaders. So, Chris, let's get right into the new markers, newsmakers, and uh, we're going to start off with three biggies this week. What is number three on the new markers, newsmakers list? Number three on the list uh, actually came out of uh, you know this virtual CES event. Uh, you know, they had uh, a a top uh, Abbott executive on a panel who was uh, you know talking uh, you know kind of about like uh, you know how you know, Abbott kind of responded to the coronavirus pandemic last year. And, you know, one of the interesting things was they, uh, you know, by, you know, by their telling, it sounds like they were tracking this virus in, in China at the end of 2019 and into early 2020. So they're kind of, you know, early uh, in on, you know, trying to figure out what to do about it. And, um, you know, it seems to have, uh, you know, it seems to have paid off for Abbott too, because, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're uh, Binax now uh, uh, tests, which are like these fast antigen tests that are on a card. I mean, they kind of resemble pregnancy tests. Um, they've kind of become like uh, ubiquitous, you know, uh, when, it, when it comes to testing for COVID. So, um, you know, just kind of an interesting thing, um, you know, about like, you know, that, you know, hey, it kind of seems like it kind of um, helps to, you know, you know, really, uh, you know, pay attention to things and, you know, see what, see what's coming. I know 3M too, um, you know, um, you know, kind of said that they were, they were kind of getting early indications that, you know, this pandemic was going to be a big uh, a problem too. So they were, so that helped them, you know, ramp up, 
N95 mass production, though. That would be an interesting feature, actually, to talk to the various companies about what sort of war room monitoring setups they have and how they're tracking uh, this pandemic. And I hope never, but uh, future pandemics. Here's the hope that this really is a once in a hundred year pandemic, man. Cross that off the bucket list? Yes. Yeah, for sure. But uh, as you mentioned, Danielle was, quote, unquote, at CES. And uh, I had an opportunity to speak with her a bit. Obviously, telehealth was a big theme there as well. So let's hear from Danielle Kirsch. She's the senior editor at Mass Device. Danielle, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You were able to virtually, of course, attend CES 2021, which has become increasingly a kind of a medical device healthcare conference. And uh, always interesting to see what kind of gadgets and, and tech is coming out of that. What, uh, what were you able to, uh, what did you take away? What, what's new and exciting that we're going to be talking about for the next 12 months in medtech? Obviously, it felt like COVID was kind of at the center of a lot of innovation that Mm -hmm. was happening. There was a lot of talk about digital health. And I know they recently came out and said digital health was probably the biggest thing that they were doing at CES this year. And uh, one of the things that I saw was um, Omron's vital site remote heart monitor was uh, something that could monitor blood pressure from the home and like automatically send that data through a hub to your doctor who can personalize your blood pressure thresholds and improve engagement with physicians because there were um, a lot more heart attack deaths during COVID because uh, people were less likely to go to the hospital because of COVID. Do you know how they were engaging with the patient? How are they measuring it? You're actually sticking your arm in a thing that that inflates or did they have some other kind of cool interface? Um, It looks like it's like a device that just attaches to your body. Um, I guess it coincides with their Omron, um, their heart rate sensor that they had on their watch. That was a big thing for them last year. So... And you had done a feature for Mass Device, or was it MDO? Sort of MDO, uh, Medical Design Outsourcing. You were looking at the medical technologies you need to know about from from CES, and uh, one of them that looked particularly cool to me was uh, the the telemedicine one that you were able really to. It seemed as if you were able to transmit your vitals uh, via your your cell phone. Was that uh, talked about at all? Not so much in a panel, but they did have a booth. And uh, I know that one is, once again, it's on the telehealth track and uh, it uses artificial intelligence and video-based monitoring to um, measure vital signs like heart rate, oxygen, saturation, Mm -hmm. respiration rate, um, just using your smartphone camera. And it works with anyone over the age of 18 of any gender. And they said any skin color as well. So... That's outstanding. That's going to be interesting to watch. All right. Well, well, cool stuff. Thanks for keeping us abreast. Now that you've gone to CES uh, virtually, you're going to you know, push to go uh, go next year when it's hopefully back in Vegas? <laughs> we were hoping I could go th- uh, this year in person, but <laughs> this will do. Maybe it'll give me some, some leeway up top. Yeah, good warm-up. Yeah, a little leverage when you're negotiating the travel budget next year. <laughs> yeah. All right, Danielle. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. All right, and we're back. Chris, will you get Danielle Kirsch a travel budget so she can actually go to Vegas next year for CES? Can you can you do anything about that? Hey, I don't know. I think I think Danielle, you know, that might be in your future. So we'll start lobbying. Well, let's give it a few more months, but uh, certainly need to get get back to some in person meetings. Yeah, be like Danielle. I mean, what do you think of blackjack? I mean, that's a that's a question. Yeah, it's my game, man. Now it's time for my conversation with Mark Tolan, the CEO of MMI. Once again, Mark had been the CEO of Corindus, so he knows robotics. Corindus was really focused on telesurgery. MMI has a much different approach to robotic surgery. Let's listen. Well, Mark Tolan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to catch up with you. Uh, we caught up with or spoke with Doug Tini earlier this year, got the update on Corindus. You've left Corindus uh, at the time. I think you were just uh, had just left or, or were leaving and uh, wanted to follow up with you and, and see where you landed. You've got an interesting story. At the time, though, I, I seem to remember you were going to go the VC route. Did that did that just not take or or did this opportunity come to you uh, come to you after that? How, how did you end up end up at uh, Medical Micro Instruments? Yeah, it's a great question, Tom. So what we uh, experienced at Corindus was uh, a, a really fun, exciting, and pioneering journey. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, now Siemens has a hold of it. Uh, they'll continue uh, to execute on our, our mission and vision 
of bringing uh, a vascular robotics across the world and, and really solving some pretty significant issues with access to care. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, was nice about Corindus uh, after I left Boston Scientific was you jumped into a smaller company and you were really able to uh, you know, make some things happen that uh, you know, larger companies have a difficult time moving as quickly as uh, these small companies. So I really enjoyed that. That was one of the requirements of me looking for the next thing is, uh, is how can you really mm-hmm. uh, impact something quickly? And also, how can you put yourself in a position where you're impacting where healthcare is going versus where it's been. And so uh, the VC space, I'm still involved in. I'm a partner with Biostar Capital. Okay. And quite honestly, it affords me the opportunity to, uh, you know, I will say, um, you know, purview all of the early stage work that's going on out there in devices from a capital standpoint, capital infusion standpoint, as well as a potential operational standpoint and oversight. So it's been a, a really great experience to be part of Biostar and uh, one one that will continue. So, you know, that still sits in existence, but, um, you know, I, I still needed to, you know, put my teeth into a, a really big operational job. As a result, uh, I jumped into a microsurgical robotics company called uh, MMI uh, based out of Italy. I, uh, I am the CEO there and We'll be uh, trying to, uh, you know, bring the field of microsurgical robotic to uh, to fruition. It's uh, similar to Corinda's. Uh, interventional robotics was still in its infancy. Microsurgery robotics is still in its infancy, and that's just a fun experience to go through. That's great. No, that's a great lead-in for my question because when I did hear that you would join a startup in surgical robotics, I thought to myself, well, every big company has its program. We've seen so much mm-hmm. development in this just over the last five years or so. What could be left? Like, are, are we at a point where there's some me tooism going on uh, in regard to to follow-up technologies? Uh, I'm curious from your perspective, I want to get into MMI in a moment, but you you were at Boston Sci, you were at Corindus, you were in the VC world, which allowed you to survey the landscape. What is the state of surgical robotics? Uh, are we moving into a are we moving to a point where specialty robotics companies like MMI are sort of going to be the next generation, the next wave? Well, I think there's uh, there's two waves. Um, one wave uh, we're already seeing is that you know a lot of the robotic companies uh, in the surgical space, uh, Pick Intuitive or Medtronic or J and J, you know they're they've they've spent a lot of time thinking about how to build the hands. Uh, for I'll call it general surgery, and that's the robot itself. Now uh, they're they're thinking about you know data integration work. They're thinking about how that translates into uh, artificial intelligence over time. So so the the big you know big broader eyes you know brain and the hands merged together is one trend that I think all the big robotic companies are trying to think about how they differentiate their platform and their portfolio that goes beyond just the robot. That's one. Number two is, I do think that there's spaces in, in robotics that are completely untouched. And you know, a great example of that is you know, when uh, Aris launched the platform around you know, bronchial oncology work. Um, you know, there's only one company building a technology behind that that was intuitive at the time, but uh, mm-hmm. you know they were able to you know generate a significant uh, valuation for their company of over three billion dollars by jumping into a field of robotics that nobody had really spent a lot of time in. So I do think there's some periphery areas of robotics that makes a lot of sense when you when you take that concept and then you say, okay, well, what is MMI doing? it actually probably makes even more sense on the robotic side because you're in you know, a micro mm-hmm. area of work where precision, reduced tremor, and everything associated with the robot being you know, just better than a human seems to really make a lot of sense. The challenge that uh, we've had in the robotic space is nobody really spent a lot of time to go develop that technology because general surgery was taking off in such a big big forum. And obviously, you know, intuitive, well over 60, 70, $80 billion, uh, everybody was chasing, how can I go compete against them? And I think some of these other companies have carved out uh, a little bit of a niche in their applications. 
which have significant patient outcome benefits. So I think there's a two-prong approach. You've got complete system, and then you've got how do you go find the niches that are untouched? That's a great point. No, you're right. The bigger companies, the robotic systems are almost like the the anchor stores that are kind of the base of the business, and now they're building the digital surgery infrastructure around it. Correct. And MMI, the, the weakness of a podcast is uh, is not being able to see <laughs> your your hand, which is just remarkably small. And I, and we'll put some links to images on it so people can, can track it. I know you're new to the company. I did catch a really cool, a nicely done video by CNBC on the company that gave a backstory mm-hmm. of, of the two co-founders, allowed them to sort of tell a story. But why don't you bring our listeners up to date to, to Samani and, and what it's, how it was developed and what it's able to do? Well, uh, the team is about 50 people uh, in uh, Pisa, Italy, and the the three co-founders uh, really you know built it from uh, the distal tip backwards. So they thought about how how do we think about you know being able to manipulate a robotic platform from the distal gripper all the way back. And and if you take a look at the work that uh, Giuseppe Prisco did at Intuitive, he had uh, twelve years of experience with Intuitive, all on the R and D side. Uh, he was a, a lead engineer in the current platform, the XI, and uh, you know his ability to put together a team of people to do the tech dev was really foundational and fundamental to where where MMI is today. They were able to build a robot and get it approved uh, for microsurgery in Europe, uh, really in a record amount of time, five to six years. So uh, where it is today is 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 pretty interesting because the robot is, is, is ready to go. Uh, what's different about it compared to how people think about surgical robotics is you could go through a laundry list of characteristics, but, but the two most important things are, are what I call size and then it, I'll call it size and scale. And then your ability to replicate human movements. And so wh- why is that important? Right? So, so if you take a look at intuitive and general surgery, they're really replicating about three to five X of what a human can do in terms of their scalability. So, so three to five X. So if you move something, it's going gonna, it's gonna to translate to five times better movement by the robot. So a, a microsurgery robot like MMI is 20 times. So that means you can get a microscope on and you can scale your hand movement down 20 times more precise than your hands would do today. So it's got four times the capabilities of precision than a intuitive robot would do. And then number two is uh, you've got what's called degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. And when you're operating in small places, you need to be able to have the robot act like your wrists and your elbows. So if you're going to have true degrees of freedom, your wrists have seven degrees of freedom. The current robots on the market today have between three to five degrees of freedom. So you have to take that in and, and, and replicate that in the robot so that you can move those tiny instruments similar to how you would move your hand. So it goes beyond what we would call increased precision and reduced tremor. It actually goes into a state where how can we start to think about doing things we've never been able to do in healthcare before? So can you take microsurgery and move it to super microsurgery? Can you take it to nano microsurgery? Hmm. And and that's how we're now working with, instead of us carrying around our big laptops on all the time, we're carrying around our phones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about taking the, the work that's been done in the, in the super micro and the nanotechnology field of electronics and apply it to healthcare, you've got neurosurgeons who look at reducing the incision in the brain and how much brain they have to take out. You've got plastic surgeons being able to reconstruct things that they've never been able to reconstruct before. You can sew back on digits of your hands or your your toes and trauma. You can do different pediatric applications that you've never been able to do before. And we really haven't even tested how far you could take the technology with applications that go into the super micro and or nano field. 
So you're, it sounds as if you're talking not only about hopefully or, or actually your studies show that you are improving the performance of some of, the, some of these procedures. I think it was the preclinical data showed that uh, you reduced or Samani reduced thrombosis or the formation of blood clots by, by half, which is, is remarkable. So you're not only doing things that are currently done better, but you see an opportunity to do things that currently can't be done. Well, you know, I, I do. So going back to the do things that you, you, you know, you want to do better, you know, imagine that you can reduce. Um, so, so the blood clots are one element, mm-hmm. but really essentially what that means is you've got a failure of the vessel. So you have no blood flow in whatever you just uh, created, which is essential to the recovery of that patient. The patient gets closed after surgery. So to go and redo that because the blood isn't flowing in the artery or the vein, or even you can apply it to nerves, then you've got a significant patient outcome problem on your hands. So we saw that in the preclinical data that could have a dramatic impact on you know, patient redos and the ability for a patient to recover faster and you know, not have as many issues associated with uh, you know, closures of vessels. So that's, that's one part mm-hmm. of it. But then there's a second part of it is, you know, super microsurgery is down to 0.3 millimeters of, of, of an artery. Wow. So what, is, what does that mean? That means that you can start to do things that you never even thought capable with your human hands. That means that a physician who uh, was thinking about doing or starting up or building a lymphatic re- uh, surgery uh, program could now actually probably do that because they have the capabilities to do it. Those are some of the smallest arteries in the, in the body. And the reason we don't do it today is because human hands can't do it. So I do think that it has applications that go very broad that we haven't even truly explored or understood yet, which is part of the exciting journey of, of this company. Uh, When you're talking about, you know, robotic companies that are just going after, Hey, I, I want to compete against intuitive mm-hmm. and I want to go after the laparoscopic surgery, robotic play. This company is, I want to go create a field that doesn't even exist today. That's exciting. So, and, and given your background with Corindus, where you were working with 5G, you were working with telesurgery. Do you see that opportunity here? Because if you have these robots everywhere and, and a single specialist, not nearby, but near enough to be able to do it, you, you, could, you could help a lot of people in a lot of remote places. I do. I really do, particularly for the emergent cases like trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you got, uh, I mean, the first couple of cases we did were motorcycle accidents, and uh, we had to work on feet, uh, and we were you know replacing the 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 toes of the foot, uh, and as you you're tying back the arteries and then and the and the nerves, you know, imagine you don't have a microsurgeon trauma physician available. You could essentially bring the Samani in right over top of the general surgeon, and you could have the microsurgeon operating from wherever in the world for just that particular application, mm-hmm. you know, sewing a 0.5 millimeter artery together in a vascular anastomosis that's going to regenerate the blood flow of the tissue that was dislodged from the patient. So you're in no way competing with any of the other surgery uh, systems you mentioned before. I mean, you're going to have a Mako and one of these. You're going to have uh, uh, one of the other systems and this. Talk to me about, I'm not an engineer, but I'm just fascinated by the idea of translating the the force of a surgeon, the, 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 the gestures, the moves of a surgeon and, and, and narrowing them into this this teeny tiny force where you're moving your hand by an inch, but you're actually moving the, the surgical piece by a, a fraction of that. How does that, what are the challenges of doing that? That sounds difficult, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not an engineer either, uh, Tom. So I, I got to say that, you know, my level of knowledge of, of taking this down to a grander level, like my VP of R&D or Giuseppe could do Fair. is uh, lesser than that. But, you know, let me give you a, a visual of this. So, you know, imagine you're the operator and, and you've got these two uh, tweezers in both hands and you're essentially using these tweezers in a field of the of air. And within this field of air, you're able to sew like you normally would sew as a physician, assuming you were in the body. And then this is translating in 20x times your movements uh, from behind you and over your shoulders of exactly the hand movements that you're you're moving. So what what it allows you to do, it allows you to program it so you could go all the way down to 10x, 15x, 12x, 
or 20x, depending upon how small of space you were able to accomplish mm-hmm. or you wanted to try to accomplish in, which allows you optionality. So if you are uh, if you want to make more macro movements and you don't need the same precision, you can start to do this with Samani. But if you want super fine micro movements with super fine detail associated with an area that you're trying to sew super small arteries like 0.3 to 0.5, you're essentially doing this in the air. And it's just it, it, it's it, it's recognizing your hand movements at the same time that you're making the movements. And it's doing it in a way we call nano wrist technology. So uh, if your wrist is moving one degree of freedom uh, or if your other wrist is moving three or four degrees of freedom, it will replicate your wrist movements the same way that, that you currently do as a, as a human. And quite honestly, that's been one of the biggest gating factors of microsurgical robotics is no company has ever been able to come up with seven degrees of freedom of movement mm-hmm. in the robot compared to others that are closer to three to five degrees of movement. So, you know, think of them moving up and down and side to side, maybe a couple angles. But if you're really in a super small space, you've got to be able to go every single angle in every single direction. And that's what we've got here. Excellent. Three more questions. Small question. Are you going to be developing your own instruments? Do you develop your own instruments that are used with the robot or do you use standard tools would be used in these procedures? We do. Um, so, you know, imagine our our robot has disposable instruments that they lock into the robot mm-hmm. and, you know, they're essentially the grippers and the scissors and, you know, all components to you being able to grab a super small suture and then be able to take that suture and sew. Um, so that's essentially uh, what the company has today in terms of instrumentation of how to do this uh, type of procedure. You wouldn't need more than that. Uh, so you, you would essentially use our instruments to get into the uh, area you want to operate. And then once you were in there, you would start to use, uh, you know, the, the suture from any manufacturer out there. Bigger question for the company. What is, you have CE Mark, what is your status commercially in Europe and what are your plans in the US with the FDA? Great question. Uh, so we've, we plan to commercialize selectively in Europe. Um, I think one of the most important things that a robotic company can do right now is, is create uh, value for the product. And, and so what does that mean is that, we've got to go build a sound base of clinical evidence to support our applications before you can just go out and start to, you know, sell robots. I think we can, we can do that in a thoughtful way with strategic accounts in Europe that allow us to really uh, put ourselves in a position where we learn a lot. Mm-hmm. We gather the right amount of evidence to support our value proposition. And simultaneously to that, we'll use that data to submit into the FDA our approach with them on how we might get that approved. So if we work those two in parallel, we get FDA approval at the same time that we've got a number of publications and clinical evidence supporting what we're saying, so that when we really want to commercialize in a really large way across the world, starting with the U.S. and also in Europe, and then potentially even going to Japan, South Korea, and other places, you've got that value proposition created other than just what we've currently talked about today. And that's our goal in the short term is to gather clinical evidence, start up uh, in selective sites in Europe that uh, really want to explore the technology and the applications of it. And simultaneously, uh, we'll be launching or gathering the right amount of evidence to support our application in the FDA for approval. Timeline-wise, uh, you know, this year is, is about, um, you know, get, gathering the evidence, and next year is about the FDA approval. Okay. And final question about you. You're, you said you're still with Biostar. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you looking for what, – what kind of deals are you looking for? Are you looking – for more robotic deals, are you looking to do, is this your only robotic deal you don't want to do anymore? What, someone who wants to pitch you an idea, what kind of stuff are you looking for at, at Biostar? Yeah, so a uh, few, few answers to that. So number one is uh, I joined a board of an AI company. It's a cardiology AI company called Cardiologs. Um, I've also joined the board of an early stage startup uh, in the um, early med device space for 
uh, IVL therapy. IVL is essentially shockwave. Uh, so, you know, it, it, you know, it, hmm. that company's done extremely well. They've got a $4 billion market cap. And, and so we've, we've funded that company and started to, you know, expand in, in the development of that. It's early, early stage, but uh, that's been an interesting journey. The AI piece is commercially available. Um, you know, think of it as uh, the intel inside of, of all the diagnostic ECG work that's going on out there. It's really kind of an exciting time to think about how we monetize AI because nobody's really done it yet. Um, that's an area that still mm -hmm. is, is in discovery mode. And so I have a, a keen interest in that. Um, and, and Biostar is looking broad and wide. So they've historically been cardiovascular and orthopedic focused, but they're expanding to all healthcare now, including healthcare IT, including areas in the diabetes space. And that's been fun to be able to see things beyond what my previous experience has been. Uh, but I think one of the things that's uh, really exciting, it, it, it particularly, you know, I'll call it the silver lining of of, uh, of, of COVID-19 is that, you know, the interest level in new technology and healthcare is, has never been higher. So there's a lot of activity going on. <laughs> Absolutely. No, we're seeing a lot of, of fundraising uh, dollars going to it as well. So I, I know I said three questions. I'm going to ask the fourth. Uh, what does the field or, or, or the crop of new robotics companies look like? Are you, are you seeing slash hearing slash aware of a lot of startups out there that are trying to really disrupt many, many things? Is it a kind of a slow percolation? What, what, is the, what does that, that field look like right now? Well, the surgical rob robotic space is is never it's it's never never really been hotter. I mean, if you think about the number of companies investing in robotics R and D, it's 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 uh, I know of fifty plus companies out there, and you've got the big strategics uh, that are leading a significant investment charge. You've got the you know medium sized companies that are just trying to make it, like Transenterics and Titan Medical and some mm -hmm. of these others. And then you've got the smaller startups that, you know, you and I don't even really know about. We just hear concept only right now. So I think you've right. got, you know, three different types of, uh, of robotic plays, which is really interesting for the time of, of robotics, because um, I don't know if we know what the next five years is going to present to us, because there's a lot of great ideas that are happening behind the scenes that we may not even see in terms of prototype mode. The one thing I will tell you, though, is every single robotic company going back to our first part of the conversation is thinking about how they make their system a platform, not just a robot. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one of the most important key ingredients of the equation. Uh, but I do think you'll see uh, com competitors out there to uh, Corindus. Uh, I've heard of three or four companies that are early stage mode of prototype build, uh, particularly as they think about a neurovascular robotic platform. Uh, I think you'll continue to see advancements in the general surgery, surgery robotic space. And then you've got the niches out there that uh, will continue to attract interest, particularly if there's an unmet need that the robot is meeting. Uh, competitors to Corindus or to MMI? Uh, all of the above. I, I think okay. that, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, uh, I just don't think any space right now, that's why I put so much an emphasis on IP in robotics. I don't think any space in robotics is not going to have comp competition. Uh, I think there's going to be uh, plenty of, I'll call it copycats out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, um, you, you know, <laughs> the valuation of these companies is, is, is super high. And, you know, they're going to continue to grow because there's such a long growth runway. If you look at the 20-year trajectory of where robotics is going to go, Mm -hmm. The long growth runway just adds up so significantly from a valuation standpoint. It makes a tremendous amount of uh, sense financially. But then as you find the right application to meet an unmet need, it, it's, a, it's a double whammy in terms of a home run. Well, this is a really fun conversation. Can't wait to see what, uh, what MMI can be and uh, look forward to following the story. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom. All right, so Mark Tolan is going to be leading the way at uh, MMI. It was interesting, Chris. I, I didn't realize until I read the press release that Andrew Cleland, the former CEO of uh, Ardian and of, of 12, and uh, has been with the Fogarty Institute, is the chairman of that group. So I think that's a... Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a, a pretty... Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's some pretty prestigious leadership there. So, uh, yeah. Next up on our New Marcus Newsmakers, number two. 
is well steris is gonna acquire cantel medical for a 4.6 billion dollars so this is another i mean we're only a few weeks into the year we're already having more uh, major you know mergers in the in the medical device space you know and this you know this is a big deal because i mean these are both companies that are uh you know like are doing a lot of things in the infection prevention space and now they're coming together so i mean it's really kind of creating an infection prevention giant um so so really uh, really interesting to see where uh, that's going you know they're kind of saying you know what one of the big things for steris is that this would add a full suite of high level disinfection disposables capital equipment services uh you know to steris's endoscopy offerings uh, so uh so yeah very interesting and and steris gets to branch into the dental business a bit you know through the acquisition so so just yeah we'll uh, we'll see how this goes well i remember one expert in our last podcast of 2020 suggesting that MA would be a huge trend in 2021 that here we go. Expert was Chris Newmarker. So Zoom high five, Chris. Wow. Boom. I am get a <laughs> virtual high five. You know what you are talking about. All right. Now let's hear the number one Newmarker's newsmakers of this week. Well, number one is uh, Elizabeth Holmes case, Theranos. Uh, here we go. You know, they there's been a slew of motions uh, in, in recent days. Um, they're really trying to hammer out what kind of evidence is going to be allowed in the case, uh, which is you know, scheduled to start in July and in, uh, in San Jose. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the really interesting things is that the prosecutors would very much like to talk about her lifestyle uh, when she was running the company. Uh, private jets, luxury hotel trips. And much, much more. And much, much more. <laughs> you know, hobnobbing with the world's elite. Uh, so, you know, her lawyers are, you know, saying that this would, um, you know, amount to like an imp- improper emotional appeals with the uh, with the jury in, in the case um, so, well yeah we'll see what the uh, what the judge allows but this seems to be one one strategy that the uh, prosecutors uh, you know seem to be considering uh, is is to kind of like like some of that stuff hopefully for them like lay lay out some of that stuff to suggest her motivate motivation for why uh you know why the company um you know allegedly committed this you know massive fraud it's an interesting uh it's an interesting question i mean i think anybody who would pursue something like this would be after yeah the riches that go with it so uh i don't know if it's peculiar to this case but uh i guess they have to, to chase that down so all right well excellent uh new markers newsmakers now uh let us get into our uh, closing keynote conversation the big one And now it's time for our closing keynote conversation. It's a three-person conversation with Scott Hunnikins, the former CEO of Verb Surgical, as I mentioned. He also previously had been CEO of Volcano Corp. Scott's really led the way in digital medtech. And we talked a bit about whether that term is a little redundant or what it means exactly. So also happy to be joined by Cal Patel. Cal is the CEO of Bright Insight. He previously had worked at Amgen, helping that company with its digital strategy, and Doctors on Demand, which is a telehealth company. So Scott, Cal was coming to this conversation with a stronger pharma services background. Scott, of course, comes with a deep, deep, deep medtech background. It was a, a great and interesting conversation to understand where we are with digital medtech. Let's listen. Well, Scott Hunnikins and Cal Patel, welcome to the podcast. Excited to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Well, great. Well, it's Friday afternoon, Friday before the virtual JP Morgan conference, which I'm not sure how exactly that's going to happen. It's going to be strange not having that gathering this year. But uh, I know you you both are a part of a conversation that'll take place next week, talking about sort of the state of, of digital connectivity. Actually, I think uh, Mick Farrell will be on there as well. We've had him on a few device talks projects before, so he's a, another great panelist. But by the time people hear this, that will be long and done. So I don't want to talk about that specifically, but I want to tackle the issue of digital technology in in medtech. This is a a term as far as I know, Scott, you and I talked a few years ago when you were uh, post-verb, but you were sort of the first one in my mind anyway to sort of talk about digital surgery and really bringing the term digital into medtech. Now, after 2020, where we've all had to talk virtually and distantly and however you want to say it, the term digital has sort of taken over and it means a lot of different things. So I want to use this conversation to ask you where we're at and, and sort of where we're going. You, you come at this 
question with very unique backgrounds, distinct backgrounds. Scott, you're coming from MedTech where you've really incorporated digital into a lot of what you're doing. Cal, you're coming into this from telemedicine and from far, now you're working with pharma, you've worked with pharma and MedTech. So uh, I really am excited about this talk. So let's just sort of talk a bit about your backgrounds first, just so people know where you're coming from. Scott, what are you currently doing? And uh, and sort of how is it? How have you gotten to this point? And, and maybe in your answer, you can just quickly run us through uh, what you were doing at Verb and, and the 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 outcome there, and, and what that's uh, what that's meant to you. Yeah. So for for those who don't know, I, I was the employee number one at Verb Surgical, which was the joint venture between Google and J and J to build the next generation OR, which we call digital surgery. So it wasn't just a robot, but it was a robot visualization and navigation instruments every OR being connected uh, and then having a platform where all of that information could be aggregated uh, to, to improve surgery, democratize surgery, uh, share that information you know, outside with clinicians on a platform, uh, et cetera. And that, that kind of came out of my experience at Volcano where we built a, a market leading position with a platform uh, in cath labs and, and grew to seven, 8,000 installed systems with apps. And those, those terms were new to MedTech and that is open platform, a platform where you would have apps and you would have different companies integrate onto a platform uh, to, to create uh, benefits for the clinician as well as, as, the, uh, as the patient. And so my background uh, has, has come up through these integrated system platform plays, and we're doing the same thing now at Acutus, where I'm the executive chairman in the EP space. We're doing it at Nuvasive, where I'm on the board with robotics, visualization, navigation, and, and implants in minimally invasive spine. And I can give you multiple examples where, you know, Mick Farrell and what they're doing at ResMed or what's being done by Dexcom and, and continuous glucose monitoring. So for me, it's we've moved from MedTech 1.0, which was make this device into MedTech 2.0, which were smarter devices that had capability, to now MedTech 3.0, where the device is connected we can aggregate data to make the devices smarter, interplay with the clinician, interplay with the patient uh, as well, both on a vertical uh, basis at the episode of care or horizontally over the continuum of care. So that ties into what I'm doing now, uh, both on public boards and then, you know, investing in and on a number of private boards where I see the opportunity to completely disrupt markets where people are stuck in the 2.0 world. There's an opportunity to move to the 3.0 world uh, mm -hmm. where there's a digital transformation that makes the product, and it's, the product is a broader solution. It's often a platform and it's not just you. You, you can be connected like and, and be enabled by things like what Cal and Bright Insider are doing or what Proximine, Care Syntax, uh, and the likes of Avail are doing in, in the OR as examples. So it's a fascinating time. And when you look at a digital playbook, it's like there's 500 digital health companies and you see these eight different markets that are, that are going to be disrupted. You look at like what Teladoc and Lavongo are doing, et cetera. So it's, a, it's an exciting time. And that's what I'm focused on participating in because of the benefits that happen for cost, quality, and, and outcomes. I, I think this is just such an exciting time. Never, never been a better time to be in MedTech. Yeah, it really is exciting. And, and Cal, I want to get into Bright Insight in a second, but Scott, are, are, are we, the, the term digital MedTech, I mean, is it, are we at a point where it's almost redundant, where everything in MedTech needs to have some digital component, or is it still new enough that, that it's a category unto itself? No, I think you know you're you're absolutely right. It, it has to be digital medtech. If you're if you're making a device, you have to understand and build into how it's going to be connected for that episode of care, uh, as well as how it fits into the continuum of care. Uh, it, it just has to be part of the way you're thinking. Whether that's hey, I want to have a closed platform and have a complete sol solution, which I think is the wrong strategy. I'm a huge proponent of open. There's no way we would have all the capability on that iPhone that we have that was introduced in 2007 today with Airbnb and Uber and everything else, if it would have been a closed platform where Apple had to develop every app. So um, I think ORs, uh, 
you know, EP labs, you name the episode of care, you know, having it open, having it connected. Now you're what you see with, whether it's, you know, all these online physician visits to overreening, you know, derm abrasion, things like what derm tech is doing. I mean, there's just so many cool applications for digitization of workflows, products, and they all have to fit together, which requires digitization. Well, Cal, that must be music to your ears at <laughs> Bright Insight, because that's where you come into play. Let's talk a little bit about, about Bright Insight uh, in that it, it's, it's spun out of a company called Flex. Maybe you can give a little bit out of its history and a little bit of your history as well, so uh, listeners know exactly where you're coming from. I did give your bio up top, but it'd uh, be good to hear directly from, uh, from the source. Yeah, happy to do that. And thanks for thanks for having me, uh, Tom, and uh, good to see you as always, Scott. Um, so, yeah, my quick journey. You know, I'm a physician by education, but I've been on the business side of, of medicine, uh, as I like to say, my my whole career. And and when I was at Amgen, um, you know, that's where I really got deep into the technology side of things. Right? How do we leverage technology to improve the real world performance of our drugs? And so we got started thinking about things like connectivity, things like you know, uh, algorithms, you know, et cetera. Uh, was Scott said for the benefit of um, you know, improving clinical outcomes uh, and, and the patient experience, the provider experience. And then, you know, as in telemedicine, is, is, you know, we've been talking about it's such a hot category. And, you know, in the early days of telemedicine, what was really interesting to me is, um, is the adoption curve, right? Where we had this amazing technology that people reviewed at the same level of, you know, net promoter score as the iPhone or, or Amazon, right? People just love the service. But at that time, uh, folks really used it for a specific use case. You know, they had a flu or they had, um, you know, a pink eye. But that same, you know, person wouldn't think of it for other use cases, right? So, so even several years ago, I think we were early on that telemedicine journey. And you know, one of the, um, you, you know, small silver linings of COVID has been that rapid acceleration of people really thinking a lot more broadly and, and embracing these types of, you know, digital revolutions at the, at the level of the end user. So I think that's what we're seeing in the telemedicine space. And, and, um, and you know, and, and I think that's relevant when we think about med tech and digital, because the expectation is changing now, right? Uh, you know, I think a couple of years ago, there was still a notion of, hey, what's the best widget? Uh, now, you know, the expectation of all of us as consumers, uh, you know, primary, you know, consumers first, patient second, right, is, hey, why is this not digitized? <laughs> why are these other solutions in my life that, you know, whatever it is, you know, the simple things in my life are all digitized, but the important things, you know, like my medical care is not digitized, right? And so, so I think you, we do need to get to a point where you're not using the word digital to describe basically any aspect of healthcare. And certainly that goes for med tech, medical devices, you know, at Flex and at Bright Insight, really the story, the story there is, um, you know, Flex is one of the largest third-party manufacturer of regulated medical devices in the world. And, um, and you know, working with the, many of the leading med tech companies. And, and so as they were seeing a digital transformation happening in Flex's other industry areas. Um, you know, they saw that coming to Farmine MedTech and, and uh, recruited me to help figure out, you know, what is really the opportunity from a digital perspective. And, and so we saw, um, you know, what we saw was uh, what, what Scott alluded to, right, which is folks beginning to recognize that, hey, digi digital and connectivity is not optional. We need to start thinking about that as, as an intrinsic part of our offerings. But companies really struggle to, to go from what I would say sort of POC to really thinking broad scale and, and ecosystems. Um, and, and that's where there was really an opportunity for Flex to help, uh, right? So in addition to just making the devices is how do we help you think about how do you unlock the data from a digitally enabled device mm -hmm. and manage the data end to end from a privacy, security, regulatory, and quality perspective. And that's what the Bright Insight platform does. You know, we, we've since spun out of Flex where our own independent, you know, venture now growth equity backed company. And, um, you know, we work exclusively with Pharma and MedTech and we integrate into the source of the data, whether that data is an app, an algorithm, a device, a wearable, implantable hospital device. We're really agnostic to the source of the data, but we get it off the device and into the cloud again, in a fully compliant manner, because, you know, we're built under a quality management system that governs all the way up to class three um, and combination product intended use. But, you know, for your med tech audience, you know, class three intended use. Are you selling a product or, or, or service? Are you selling a, a digital widget, for lack of a better word, that you put on a device and it collects the data, or are you collecting the data, managing the data for your clients? Yeah, much more around the second. So we're all software, right? So we're a platform. So the way to think about it, give you a 
quick analogy, right? So, you know, most people today are familiar with, you know, AWS, Amazon Web Services, or Microsoft Azure, or Google Cloud, right? Every basically digital product you use is actually built on top of one of those infrastructures, right? Doctor on Demand was built on top of AWS. Netflix is built on top of AWS. Amazon, the company we all know, and is built on top of AWS and video games and everything else, right? It's the same underlying infrastructure that gets used for all these different use cases. Think of us as that same in that type of infrastructure, but but purpose built for pharma and med tech for for high risk medical intended use cases. So so our infrastructure just like that is you know it's all you know not to throw out too much jargon, but you know modern software, microservices, container based, API driven. So our APIs are integrating into the source of the data. So imagine a, a for example a Bluetooth connected pen. Um, that Bluetooth pen. Uh, we could integrate directly into that pen and mm-hmm. and take the data and, and responsibly for it. Or if the pen's talking to an app, we can integrate the app on on the phone, right? Or and again, it doesn't matter if you're talking about implantable hospital equipment, et cetera. But we're taking over that data, so our customers don't have to worry about the privacy, security, regulatory, and quality requirements of of you know getting that data out of the cloud and then having regulated intended use uh, applications of that data. So Amazon is certainly operating in this space. Uh, others, I'm sure, are as well. Is there something different about medtech that uh, requires a, a specific vendor like Bright Insight? Yeah, it's all about the fact that we're uh, enabling regulated intended uses. So think, so think of it this way. Uh, well, let me describe this, which is before we did anything, we put in place a quality management system, right? That governs all the way up to class three intended use applications of your data. So every single piece of code we write is under that quality management system. And all of the underlying vendors that we use, right? Technology tools and services you use. So for example, we're built on top of Google Cloud, but we work closely with those companies. We validate you know, all of their uh, functionalities that we use within our regulated environment. So we basically have built a stack on top of a public cloud that's purpose built for these high risk use cases. So if we, if you didn't use us, then a company has to do all that work themselves. And, and frankly, that's what a lot of legacy solutions do today. They, you know, and again, the analogy may be, do you, do you run your own servers, right? Do you have a, a server plant that, that runs your own servers or do you, do you migrate to the cloud and build your offerings in the cloud? Today, it's almost a, a laughable issue, right? No one's going to put in their own servers. They're going to go, they're going to go build on top of a public cloud. Think of it as kind of the next layer of that. Why would you do all this work over and over and over when we are focused hundred percent on ensuring the compliance of that data and taking that availability global, right? So we're, we're you know, we have our uh, master file with the FDA in the US, you know, we're available in the European Union. We just went through our MDSAP, um, you know, audits to be available in countries like Japan, Australia, Canada, et cetera. We're working on China. So we're, you know, we're this layer of infrastructure, right? Technology infrastructure that, and so then our customers can really focus on their actual device and, you know, what's the sensor or what's the, you know, the data and then using that and turning it into insight without getting all mucked up by what are the privacy laws in France versus in the UK versus in Japan, because we're taking care of all of those requirements from a data management perspective, right? Or what's my intended use? You know, gosh, I was, you know, only displaying the data and I wasn't regulated, Mm -hmm. but now all of a sudden I now want to use the same data feed and make a suggestion to the patient, right? So you can literally take the same physical solution and go from being unregulated with that data to being regulated. Um, Well, with our infrastructure, you can make that cross uh, over to that without having to restart. Um, Maybe I'll just say one thing, you know, analogy I use a lot, Again, a little bit laughable for all of us in the med tech space, but it, it applies. Is you know when you're talking about software, you have you know think about a hammer, right? If, if you built your hammer and you're selling it at Home Depot, right, and then one day you're like, "This is a beautiful hammer. I should sell it to orthopedic surgeons." We can't do that. You got to start over, right? Because you, you know you never had your you know human factors in place, you your device controls in place. You don't know where you're sourcing half your materials from. You don't you know you don't have any of that, right? So you can't just make that leap. You got to have known from day one that hey, this is probably a hammer I intend to sell into the operating room. What's similar on the software side? We run into companies all the time that are sort of operating in the non-regulated space uh, and, and either don't realize they're actually regulated or that they want to cross over to that regulated space. Um, and, and then they're stuck, right? Or they do go into that regulated space, but they're bringing, frankly, really legacy 
um, software infrastructure capabilities, right? So they're doing waterfall, not agile. You know, they're they're solving for one specific use case, not thinking at the level of, of you know, multiple products, ecosystems, global deployment. You know, they're not thinking about, gosh, the operating system on my patient's phone is changing all the time, right? How do I make sure my app or my solution or my connected whatever stays, you know, compliant and, and, and usable as the iOS 14 comes out and the Android whatever comes out, right? So that that's the part sort of that that um, you know when I think about um, uh, you know medtech through 3.0 that um, you know folks like Scott uh, are, are thinking about but a, a lot of companies and a lot of people still haven't gotten there they're still thinking bespoke right they're still thinking I'm going to put connectivity into this device and aren't really taking a step back and saying well you know am I doing this in a in a ecosystem oriented way? And am I focusing on what my company's competitive advantage is? Or am I creating a solution that's going to have siloed data and, you know, not really be able to sort of scale and integrate into the lives of, of patients and providers? So, so Tom, your, your non-digital native medical device person just listened to Cal there and they start to glaze over and, and they're just like, oh my God, this is just too much. And I, I'm going to put digitization out there a year or, or two. But thank goodness we have, again, people like him that are developing these solutions that you can integrate and be part of what you're doing to have and deliver that MedTech 3.0 uh, vision. Because you don't need to own it. You can partner with people like them or in other areas uh, to, in order to create your, in our case at Verb Digital Surgery or your digital surgery at Nuvasive or in the dental space at Invista, the digitization of a, of a work stream relative to an implant or aligners like with Align. All of these things, they all need these kinds of tools that don't really add, add they enable, but, but you, know, you could get just caught up in, oh, it's a millions of dollars. How do I stay up to speed with all of the data requirement laws and all of these different countries and the regulatory stuff? So thank goodness there are these, and, and you see it like with Viva, which is now worth like $50 billion, which you know is basically a solution built on Salesforce to enable the whole pharma industry to, to do all their distribution and marketing of, of their products and, and stuff for prescription drugs. So these kinds of solutions that integrate with others, we've, we've, we've used them, whether it's Workday with HR or it's Salesforce for sales or any ERP systems, these SaaS-like solutions are enabled us to do this digitization. So uh, it's it, like when I started in this, you had to do everything, like manufacturing you can go, you can outsource this manufacturing to this place, the cloud to this place. To the, you can just specialize. You need to do value chain wise, uh, which reduces the capital that's required and allows you to go faster as well with these devices. Yeah, maybe I could, Tom, you know, I'll just build, build on Scott's comment for a second, you know, because you guys come from the industry and, and I have this perspective from Flex. Medical devices is actually the most vertically integrated industry out there, if not one, one of the most or the most, right? So, so it's actually not in the DNA of people from medical devices to think, how do I focus on only what I need to do and outsource everything else, right? It's like the opposite of Nike, right? Nike, as we know, doesn't own anything, right? They're, they're doing all the design work, but yet that's where all the value is, right? And, and so the medical device industry needs to make this journey, I would say, across the board, but certainly in digital, right? So for software, people who are software natives, they don't start by saying, let me build all my code from scratch. They're starting by saying, how do I build as least as possible and, and pick up all the other source code, right, from everybody else stitch it together and then add my value add, focus on my sort of value add piece, right? It's not how MedTech's historically been oriented. And they've unfortunately taken the same approach to the digital side. Now, you know, many companies, obviously, Scott's giving examples of many companies that are doing it the right way. But many companies have taken, you know, sort of are moving to digital, taking the like, let me start from scratch and build it all myself. And then you know, and again, all the investment goes in the infrastructure and very, very little of the investment goes in the actual value add innovation, right? The differentiating innovation. And so then the speed to market, as Scott said, the cost, um, you know, lack of integration in the ecosystem, all those things then make these digital uh, investments either not attractive or certainly, you know, not as valuable for, for the patients and, and, and the company. 
We've established, and, and we've, this is something we've talked about extensively last year, especially. Again, digital came to the forefront with COVID. We've all had to operate differently. We've talked with other companies. S3 Connected Health is a group that we've talked with. I don't know if they work if they compete with you or not, or if they have a different solution. But there are a lot of companies forming that are offering medtech makers the ability to to incorporate digital technology into it. So I guess, Scott, my question for you, you've been in on this earlier on. Uh, I want to understand what the landscape looks like now for incorporating digital technology in, into medtech. And who and what will hold this back? I mean, you can look at the the patients. We've all got iPhones now. We're all somewhat connected. We're collecting data that can be useful. Physicians have had to uh, you know, have had to bring digital into their world, or they've been able to through telemedicine and other means. We're talking now about med tech companies and, and developers of devices. Are 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 all these constituencies? Uh, are they? up and ready to go and they're all ready to push forward with this digital revolution or are there some laggers where where do we stand in in that field yeah i think you you've got people on the on the forefront who are pushing forward who realize there's no going back everybody has to move to the medtech 3.0 world digitization and uh so i I think everybody realizes that and COVID is has just accelerated it as you as you've said now that's the what. So there's always the what, and then there's the how. So some people, you know, are still struggling with the what and, and how they define it. And, and so some people may define it too broadly. And so they're, it's hard for them to get started. I'm a proponent of get started with, with small steps and give yourself optionality to move into how the digital transformation in your service or product can evolve. And that's, often using third parties and working and learning uh, as you go. Or if you're like a J&J, I think they were very smart to partner with a Verily and Google to kind of get some digital native kind of blood and DNA into the organization about what's possible. Uh, but you get into a lot of elements of, of regulation that exists that are different in, in different places uh, that have you know data privacy, data control, who owns the data, uh, patients and HIPAA, those all need to be dealt with. They're, they're being dealt with and we can't let it hold us back. We've got to lean into working you know, together, the physician groups, MDMA, AdvaMed, et cetera, around the world, Ucomed, to, to get after uh, those solutions. And then there, there are these laggards who want to protect the status quo because when industries go through transformation, there become new winners and there are people who are losers. So th- there, are, there are certain people who are trying to have closed platforms, who are trying to slow down innovation to protect their, their position. They don't want to have to make investments in protecting an existing position because they have investments in new spaces they want to go into. And I would just say that's myopic and uh, it's going to end up with them losing their strategic position because, you know, that, that next generation is going to come along. So you, you see it across the board, but in general, there is a momentum that's extremely positive uh, that's occurring uh, at this point in time in this digital transformation. And, and you see it with the Cerners and Epics, which have over the last two years become more open, mm-hmm. still not open enough, I would say. Um, becoming more open and we'll just we all just need to keep putting pressure on uh them and the payers as well we need to they need to be on board as well right yeah and that's in that regulatory bucket with reimbursement so you know like eric topol's written a lot on this great insights you know if you if you're not going to pay for you know a physician visit that's done telephonically it's not going to happen right and so uh, you need to look at what makes the most sense, what we can do, how, how it's scalable, how it, it makes sense economically uh, for payers and providers. So, absolutely. Well, we'll I want to r- wrap this up, but but Cal, you came in, into this, well, you've got experience on the pharma side. You're still working with pharma companies. Could you just give me a, a sense of where that industry is versus our industry? Do we have things we need to learn from them? Do we have things we can do better than they did? What's uh, How do the two stack up? Yeah, it's a good question. It's an interesting time, actually, because I think most pharma companies, um, they uh, historically have been behind from a 
digital and you know, from a regulated digital perspective, uh, whereas pharma, sorry, medtech has been much more used to software and putting software right on defibrillators or neuromodulators or, or you know, other connected solutions and so forth. Pharma historically has not had um, to work with, reg, you know, software from a regulated perspective. Now, with that said, there's a total sea change happening in that industry. So across the board, virtually every pharma company now has a chief digital officer. Every pharma company is working on, on regulated digital health products, you know, regulated apps, various types of algorithms. For example, at Bright Inside, we're working on drug, personalized drug dosing algorithms, um, uh, um, uh, algorithms to help identify whether a person is appropriate for a therapy, um, algorithms looking for adverse events. Um, that's often a common wearable plus algorithm. Um, so pharma in a big way is moving into this space. And I think the, the, um, the, the companies that are, um, you know, I think going to be the real winners uh, through, through this part of the tr- digital revolution are really those that are understanding kind of what we've been saying all along, which is hey, how do we focus on that, on really the data and the insights and the patient and the clinical side, not on all the infrastructure side. And, they, and pharma has the advantage of not having all this legacy spend that medtech has, right? I think unfortunately, medtech, many of the medtech companies, you know, are saddled with existing infrastructure, existing teams that then create their own energy, right? Because they are like, hey, we want to keep spending on what we've built and grown. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you know, and, and we've seen this story over and over, right? As Scott said, maybe you've seen it, whether you want to use the Blockbuster example, Blockbuster video example, or you want to use the Kodak example, right? The, the, the incumbents, it's, there's no shortage of um, strengths and capabilities and insights and talent. It's about the will to, you know, to be able to, to take the leap to, to what the future is. Right. And, and, and I think pharma in some ways will be easier for them because they don't have all the legacy, um, the legacy stuff in place, if you will, to, to have to dismantle and, and kind of jump ahead to the 3.0 version. So maybe they can go from 1.0 to 3.0, whereas MedTech is going to have to, you know, really disassemble some of the 2.0 uh, uh, sort of approaches to, to unlock 3.0. Great. And, and Scott, I'll give you the, the final word. We've got just a few minutes. Uh, what, where is MedTech going from here, I guess, in terms of, is there a lot of deconstruction that needs to go on for this sector to go forward? Do you see that happening? Uh, and, and what do you advise a lot of companies? What are companies coming to you looking for advice? I imagine they need to have this in their PowerPoint presentation somewhere, digital strategy. It's like the Asia strategy of 10 years ago. Everyone needs a <laughs> digital strategy now, right? You, you know me, Tom, I, I sign every email, go, go, go. And I, I would encourage companies to go, 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 uh, you know, quality speed relative to a digital strategy, but important to have one to be thoughtful about it and, and be making progress uh, towards it. And I think it's a, you know, how do you, how can you improve what you're doing uh, relative to the physician, the patient uh, with that, that solution? It's just, you don't just do, or, you know, do it to do it, but I think there's opportunities to improve outcomes, improve access, lower costs, improve quality uh, with digitization. So challenge yourself to think across those, those metrics uh, and then, I don't, it doesn't require a lot of deconstruction. It's building on what you have. And now things are, are possible that weren't because you can partner with people like Bright Insight to go digitize your workflow, your product, APIs that are straightforward to connect to other devices, cloud to connect to your customers in a whole different way. And uh, data sharing or aggregating data for AI. These are, there's just so many applications of digitization. Focus on the ones that you can accomplish, that give you optionality to move into later, uh, that are competitive and important now. Uh, Don't try and do everything. Those are some of my off the top of my head thoughts. Terrific. Excellent. Well, uh, I appreciate the uh, the time, and uh, certainly we'll be following up on the on the digital story a lot on uh, on device talk. So uh, thanks for for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having us. And we're back. All right. Well, we've had a, a digital surgery kind of day, Chris Newmarker. And uh, now let's talk about some some digital means of communications, i.e. social media. How can folks find you? I'll let you go first this week once again. You can always reach me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker handle at Newmarker on Twitter. So yeah, I'll, 
Always happy to talk. And I am on LinkedIn at Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. And please make sure you like and follow Mass Device, Device Talks, and all of our healthcare properties. Find us on all the major social media channels. And of course, please, please, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other major podcast platforms. That way you make sure you do not miss a future episode. That's right. Be there or be square. 